This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch up with brand new episodes every Thursday. And for automatic updates, all you need to do is subscribe. Now, today we're finding out about the story of Anglo-Saxon England's conversion to Christianity and the key people behind it. Many of us will have heard of St. Augustine, but what about St. Hild, Hadrian and Milberger? or even Queen Bertha. Well, joining us to reveal the role they all played is senior properties historian, Dr. Michael Carter. Well, it's a real pleasure to be back, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about a pivotal epoch in English history. And it's really interesting that we're going to have this special attention on the individuals who made this happen. And as we'll see, it involved people from the three known continents of the early medieval world. That's Africa, Asia and Europe. And there's also going to be a very, very important part paid by women. That's really interesting how um, we have women and also people from other parts of the world all converging on England. But the question is, what was England, as we now understand it, like in the late 6th century? Well, you phrased that question very well indeed. There was no England, at least in terms of a unified state. There's a patchwork of kingdoms and territories, and it's all a legacy of the demise of the Roman Empire and its aftermath and the migration and invasions of various northern European Germanic peoples to these isles, mainly the Angles and the Saxons. And they, over time, established kingdoms in what's now southern, eastern and central parts of England. But there's also a significant, and really I'm struggling to describe who these peoples were, I think Britonic or British people, they're the descendants of the people who lived here in the Roman or British period. And they're especially located in western parts of England and Wales and bits of Scotland. You mentioned how some of these kingdoms were developed across England. Could you give us a list of the ones that people might be familiar with? I mean, for for instance, I think I would be now talking to you from Wessex. That's right. Which is your kingdom? Oh, gosh. Well, where I came from originally was... Well, actually, I came from a Britonic enclave of Alma, which sort of holds out against the Anglo-Saxons for quite some time before being finally conquered. But that was absorbed into the kingdom of Northumbria. And there's Mercia, there's there's the East Saxons, there's usually the West Saxons, there's the kingdom of Kent as well. There are seven major kingdoms in Anglo-Saxon England. So let's talk about some of the key characters central to our story. We mentioned in the introduction the key figure of St. Augustine. Now, who was he? And why did he come to England? Well, I'm going to deal with the second part of that question first. Why did he come to England? And it's all because of an encounter, uh, if we believe the 8th century literature, between the future Pope Gregory the Great, an enormously wealthy Roman aristocrat who becomes a priest, and as his suffix shows after his election as Pope, is arguably one of the greatest popes ever. And he has something in this encounter in the slave market in Rome. He saw some fair-skinned, flaxen-haired boys and was curious about their unusual appearance and asked who they were. 
to which he was told that they were angles. And he replies to this, these are not angles, but angels. It's an episode recounted in a life or idealised biography of Gregory, written at Whitby Abbey in the 8th century. And it's a story that actually sends a tingle down my spine every time I read or recount it. Now, it might be to some extent apocryphal, but there's definitely a kernel of truth in it. There can be no doubt at all that Gregory took a personal interest in the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons as he understood them. And it's mainly the people from um, the kingdoms of Northumbria that he first becomes aware of and that he takes an interest in this. And he may even and harboured a desire to personally lead a mission to convert them. Now, various strategic and political motives have been proposed for this, but I honestly think that his primary motive was religious. It was one of faith. It was to win these people for Christianity and to give them, as he saw it, the chance of spiritual salvation and everlasting life. And there was also various types of Christianity at this time as well. And he's wanting to make sure that they are converted to the right type of Christianity, i.e. that's the one based on Rome and with a tradition, as he saw it, going back to the Apostle Peter, that it hasn't been contaminated by various heresies or by schismatic practices. It's the true Christianity, the true faith that he wants to win them for. And his choice to lead the mission falls on Augustine. Now, he's a monk, and he's probably a monk at the monastery of St. Andrew in Rome, which had actually been founded by Gregory himself. So with 30 companions, he sets out on his mission to the Anglo-Saxons in 596, and he travels via Marseille, Vienne, Artan, and Tours. And these are already places with centuries-old traditions of Christianity. They have a bit of a wobble on the way and they receive a fortifying letter from Gregory, giving them some courage for the task ahead of them. And Augustine is consecrated a bishop. And they arrive on the Kentish shores in 597 and they're met with very friendly reception by King Ethelbert of Kent. But it happens outdoors, we are told, by Bede, our great narrator of these events. And this is, we are told, to minimise the efficacy of any magic that Augustine et al. might be able to work over them. But in actual fact, it's a planned, friendly encounter. And key to this was Bertha, Ethelbert's queen. And where did St Augustine actually come from? Where did he travel from? What, what was his native land? He's a Roman as well. Everything about him points to him being a, a Roman. So effectively, mainland Italy as we would know it today. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. So he would have come and spoken Latin, I suppose, to these people. Latin would have been a lingua, yeah, would have been a lingua franca, definitely. And especially when we get to the person of Bertha, she's Frankish. She comes from Merovingian royal stock, and they're the ruling house of what we now understand as much of France. And her family have been Christian for a few generations by now, and they are Roman Christians. So Latin would have been a language they would readily have understood. You know, England isn't cut off in this period. There's lots of evidence of political and cultural exchange between England and the continent, and even the Mediterranean and the Byzantine Empire at this time. And Ethelbert would have known what was going on over the channel. And the Merovingians are establishing a style of kingship 
which he may well have wanted to mirror. And also Christianity becomes a very, very important part of this. And it's what Edward Gibbon would have talked about as being the long shadow of Rome being cast over it. The legacy of Rome does remain very, very important to these people and, and how kings should behave, you know, to this, this idea of what imperial power should be like and the trappings of kingship and stateship and things like that. Although they retain a distinctive Germanic cultures, Rome does cast its shadow. You've touched a little bit about Queen Bertha there and her role in the conversion of Anglo-Saxon England alongside people like St. Augustine. But uh, tell us a bit more about Queen Bertha because she's a lady. Tell us a bit more about why that's important. Yeah, I mean, she's very, very important. She comes from Frankish, Merovingian royal stock there, the, the ruling dynasty in what we understand as France, bits of Belgium, perhaps going into Germany as well at this time. She's a daughter of King Cheribert, and her family have been Christian for generations. She's a descendant of Clovis, who converts to Christianity, and he converts as far as our sources for these events are concerned to the right sort of Christianity, that Orthodox Catholic Christianity, centred on, even by this time, very much centred on Rome. Now, she's a Christian, and Bede tells us that she marries Ethelbert on condition that she be allowed to practice her religion unhindered, and she's provided with, her, with a bishop to support her in this. Now, Bede says that it's from her that Ethelbert first learns of the Christian faith, and a letter from Gregory the Great to Bertha in 601 praises the warmth of the reception she gave to Augustine for the great succour and charity that she provided. And he also compares her favourably to St. Helena, mother of Constantine the Great, the first Christian Roman Empire. There's a hint in this letter that she can read. The Pope said that she's instructed in letters. And he also implies her good deeds have achieved fame not only among the Romans, but amongst other peoples as well. But he also gently chides her the letter implying that she should have taken a more active role in her husband's conversion. And actually, it goes on to say, wow, what a task she's then given. You can make up for this, it's almost like Bertha, like, you know, by encouraging her husband to convert the whole country to Christianity now. Wow. Now, Bertha and Ethelbert's court are based at Canterbury. It's been, it had been a Roman city, and there are still obviously Roman structures around. And the Queen worshipped in the Church of St. Martin. Uh, he was a very, very important Roman soldier turned monk and famously cut his cloak for a beggar. And he's venerated, gosh, from the 4th century onwards. And this church provides the first home for Augustine and his fellow missionaries. Now, they subsequently established two churches in Canterbury, the Monastery of St. Peter and St. Paul, which um, is known later in the Middle Ages as St. Augustine's Abbey, and Christ Church, that's based on the site of a Roman period church within the city walls, and that becomes the city's cathedral. Canterbury Cathedral stands on its site to this day, and these become the base for their mission to evangelise the Anglo-Saxons. Now, the task is assisted by a fresh batch of reinforcing monks who arrive from Rome in 601, and their number includes one Paulinus, and he takes the cross north to the Anglian kingdom of Northumbria. And the story of its conversion also involves an independent group of missionary monks, those from Ireland. 
So I can understand now from the perspective of trying to convert ordinary people that it always helps if you've got your political leaders, your kings and queens, who are already espousing this new belief system, particularly Queen Bertha, obviously. Ethelbert, though, is pagan, is he not? Yes, he is, but he does convert to Christianity. Quite when that conversion happens is open to question. Some people have suggested, some scholars have suggested that he's already converted or made the decision to convert before Augustine arrives. Uh, Some people would date the conversion afterwards. I mean, it's interesting what you said as well. It's the target is to convert the elites. It's the kings and a very, very interesting in virtually every single Anglo-Saxon kingdom. As the conversions progress, there's always a kind of backsliding before Christianity becomes firmly established. And we are very, very much given by our sources the story of the conversion of the elites. I want to understand general picture of religion in this England that we call England for yeah. the sake of uh, semantics. But mostly people are pagan, I presume. But were there already Christians in England around this time that St. Augustine would have travelled across the Channel to make his mission? There most definitely are Christians in England at this time, what we understand as England at this time. There being Christians in Roman Britain, certainly from the second or third century, and the religion was well established in the Roman provinces of Britannia by the time they ceased to be part of the empire in the fifth century. But just what proportion of the population was Christian isn't that clear. We do know that three bishops attended an important meeting of the church at the Council of Arles in, that's 314, that's just one year after Constantine has extended toleration to Christianity. And after the departure of Rome, um, Christianity persists in western parts of these islands, and it's no better evidence than the person of St. Patrick, the apostle of the Irish in the 5th century, and he's of Romano-British origin. But Augustine and and the indigenous Christians don't actually get on that well. Bede tells us a story of an encounter between them, and he very much puts the blame on the British Christians for things not going too well. There is a major heresy in England, uh, Pelagianism, and St Germanus of Auxerre and St Lupus are sent over to reconcile the inhabitants of uh, the former provinces of Britannia to true Catholic belief. I think it's important to say, and it's a theme we'll be coming back to a lot of this, that you know, we talk about other missionaries, that there is much, much more that unites than divides at this time in the central beliefs of Christianity. It's more of questions of religious observance, authority, and also it comes up again and again and again in Bede. It's the calculation of the true Easter, a hot button topic for much of the conversion period that we'll be talking about. And uh, speaking of hot buttons, you can actually uh, go and access that episode, which we've covered nearly three years ago now, Michael. It was our first podcast together, the Synod at Whitby. So that's worth scrolling back down to have a listen through to. Now, you talked about some Christian missionaries in your earlier answer. Were there other Christian missionaries active in England at this time? Where did they come from? Yeah, it's really interesting. We, there's very little, if any, evidence that the 
Christians who are in Western parts of England, of what's now England, are engaged in any kind of missionary activity. And if anything, there's a sense that there may well even be hostility to the missionaries that have come to convert the Anglo-Saxons because the Anglo-Saxons are this sort of invading foreign force. You know, I mean, that's how some historians have interpreted it anyway. But we do, as I said, have other missionaries coming and they are from Ireland. They reach England via Iona, the island monastery of the Scottish coast, which is founded by the Irish missionary St. Columba in 565. Now, Paulinus's mission to the Northumbrians enjoys some initial success, but Paulinus's mission, remember he's a monk who's come from Rome and via Canterbury, he goes to the Northumbrians and he enjoys some initial success in his mission to the Northumbrians. But he falters in 633 with the death of King Edwin in battle at the hands of the pagan Pender. It's one of a number of these setbacks I've been talking about in the long story of conversion. And Paulinus goes back to Kent. But the conversion of the Northumbrians is resumed in 635 when Oswald becomes king. Now, he'd been converted to Christianity while exiled at this Irish monastery at Iona. And he brings to Northumbria with him Aidan, who establishes the island monastery of Lindisfarne. Now, first thing I really want to say about this is there's much more that united the Roman or Kentish missionaries and Aidan and his followers than divides them. But they do differ in some regards of religious observance. For example, the style of the monastic haircut or tonsure. And most seriously of all, as Bede have said, how to calculate Easter. So to summarise, in the early 7th century in England, we've got indigenous British Christians, we've got a Frankish queen, we've got missionaries from Rome, and we've also got Scottish and Irish monks all active. And the conversion soon takes on an even more international dimension. And I think, before I go to talk about this, it's always worth stating the obvious, isn't it? And Christianity starts as a branch of Judaism. It's origins in the eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East, and the provinces of the Middle East became the early cradle of Christianity, and so too North Africa. And this had a profound legacy, and I'd say a very important and positive implications for the conversion of England, and that's in the shape of two men, Hadrian and Theodore of Canterbury. So I'm very intrigued to know about these two chaps, Hadrian and Theodore. Uh, I gather one is from North Africa and the other one, where's Theodore from? Well, he's from what's modern day Turkey. And I'll, t- I'll talk about Hadrian first of all. And almost all that we know about him comes from the pages of Bede. And he says that Hadrian was of African birth or of African race. It depends on how you translate it and that he was skilled in both Latin and Greek. And this probably means that he originated from one of the Greek-speaking Roman provinces in eastern North Africa, probably the province of Cyrenaica. Well, we know that he subsequently becomes abbot of Nasida. It's a monastery near Naples. And it's been credibly suggested that he flees North Africa as a consequence of Arab invasions in 644. Bede tells us that Hadrian undertook embassies on behalf of the Byzantine emperor to what's now southern France. And he also becomes known to the Pope in Rome, and that's why he gets involved in our story, the conversion of England. 
In 667, Wigurd, the Archbishop-elect of Canterbury, dies in Rome. Um, Pope Vitalian asks Hadrian to become the next Archbishop of Canterbury. He refuses, and that's where Theodore comes into our narrative. Now, Theodore is known to Hadrian. Bede tells us that he's already 66 years old. That's quite a good age for, um, for the 7th century that he's a Greek from the city of Tarsus. That was in the uh, Roman Byzantine province of Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey. Now, like Hadrian, Bede really, really bigs up Theodore's talent, saying that he was skilled in sacred and secular literature, fluent in Greek and Latin, and a man of proven integrity. Now, the Pope agrees to Hadrian's suggestion that Theodore should become Archbishop of Canterbury but on one condition that Hadrian should accompany him. And he mandates, the Pope mandates Hadrian to give his full support to Theodore and to ensure also, this is interesting, that he did not introduce into the church any Greek customs that conflicted with the teachings of the one truth faith. That's an indication of the divergences in theology and religious observance between the Latin and Greek churches that are already present at this time. And actually on that subject, Bede says that Theodore and Hadrian's departure for Canterbury is delayed by four months so that Theodore can grow his hair. And you may well be asking why. Well, it's because of that really, really oddly disputed subject in 7th century Europe, the monastic tonsure, that's the monastic haircut. Now, Bede tells us that Theodore has the tonsure of the Apostle Paul. Basically, his head is totally shaven and that he has to grow his hair again so that it can be shaved according to the Latin style. That's like, you know, the one we're most familiar with from Brother Cadfell and all that type. You know, the crown of the head is shaven. Yes, and, and Friar Tuck from Robin Hood films. An excellent cultural <laughs> reference point, yeah. So that's interesting. Well, already there's a bit more conflict, which I didn't uh, expect. What impact did the sort of dynamic duo of Hadrian, the North African, and Theodore from modern-day Turkey have on uh, the peoples of the nascent England? Well, they arrive in 669, uh, Theodore as Archbishop, and Hadrian is rapidly appointed as abbot of the monastery of St. Peter and St. Paul, what becomes St. Augustine's. Now, they jointly conduct what are called visitations. That's basically visiting churches to ensure that the spiritual and pastoral care they're providing is up to scratch, that they're adhering to orthodox teaching. And again, Bede makes a real point of saying, especially regarding Easter. And they also established a school at Canterbury, which we're told attracts a great number of students and, according to Bede, into whose minds they poured the waters of wholesome knowledge. As well as providing instruction in scripture, the a school under the direction of Theodore and Hadrian also teaches poetry, astronomy and computistics, basically, again, how to calculate Easter. Hadrian and Theodore also introduced the use of sacred music into the English church, the use of which had hitherto been very limited, we're told by Bede. And actually, you know, if you think about this, it all goes together. You know, Pope Gregory the Great is often shown with, in art with a, a little dove by his ear. That's the visitation of the Holy Spirit. 
And you'll often be told that's given him inspiration to compose what we call Gregorian chant or plain song, which was the basis for the singing of the liturgy of the Latin church throughout the Middle Ages. And indeed, to this day, it's actually just to show that he's a great author, Gregory. But, you know, it does give an indication of the importance of church music at that time. And pupils of the school are going to praise Hadrian as a respected father and a reverend teacher. What an epitaph. So that's Hadrian and Theodore covered. But there are two other names associated with this period. And this is Benedict Biscop and Wilfred. Biscop looks like bishop, which is a bit interesting from an etymological point of view. Where does that come from? Yeah, very, very good. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. And um, again, I'm going to make a very obvious point. The whole point of the mission to the Anglo-Saxons was to win converts and save souls. It wasn't just to continually supply England with a wave after wave of missionaries. And very soon, the missionaries do indeed make converts to Christianity. And they have a major impact on these converts have a major impact on the church, rising to positions of authority and shaping its culture, its theology and its future destiny. I mean, as I said, you know, this is the conversion of elites, you know, Ethelbert soon converts, ultimately all the ruling elites of Anglo-Saxon England. But we also know, you know, the nobles are converting as well. And Benedict Biscop is a very, very interesting character. Now, the name Biscop is indeed related to Bishop and he's Northumbrian. The Biscop name could indeed suggest that his family are already Christians by the time the missionaries arrive. Do they have some kind of British Britonic connections or they've embraced the cross very, very early on? And he becomes immensely influential. And another early convert is the first Anglo-Saxon Archbishop of Canterbury. His uh, name is Deus Dedit, and he's elected in 655, and he dies in 664. And uh, this podcast will be released on, I believe, on the 14th of July, which is his feast day. A bit more about Benedict. He's from a noble Northumbrian family, and the name Biscop Bishop suggests that his family may have been very early converts to Christianity and indeed may well have been Christian already before the arrival of the missionaries. Now, he enters the service of King Oswy of Northumberland, a very, very important guy for the calling of the Synod of Whitby. Go and listen to that podcast. But age 25, he decides to leave the world behind him and to make a pilgrimage to Rome. And while en route to Canterbury, he comes across Wilfred, who's a fellow high-born Northumbrian. Now, Wilfred is born in about 633, and he's educated at Lindisfarne. So the date of his birth indicates that his parents have been very early converts. And Wilfred and uh, Benedict head off together on the first of numerous trips they'll make independently to what's now France and the holy city of Rome. And their achievements are incredible. In many ways, they have parallel careers. They're both monastic founders, Benedict at Wearmouth and later Jarrow and Wilfred at Ripon. They're a fierce adherence to Roman forms of Christianity. It's Wilfred who first introduces the rule of St. Benedict into northern England. And um, Biscop's name, Benedict, 
which suggests that he indeed was also an adherent of this great monastic saint. I mean, the rule of St. Benedict's a 6th century Roman, uh, the monastery of his at Monte Cassino. He writes a rule, the little rule of beginners, which becomes the dominant form of monastic life uh, across the Latin Western Christian world. And of course, like you know, talking about the Latin side, the Roman side, it's Wilfred who is the spokesman for that side at the Synod of Whitby. And this adherence to Rome has enormous cultural consequences as well. They return from their frequent trips to the Holy City with manuscripts, sacred ornaments, relics, and craftsmen skilled in stonemasonry, glazing, panel painting, wall painting. And these are skills which had been unknown in northern England since the departure of Rome centuries earlier. And it's also thanks to Benedict Biscop that John, the arch cantor from Rome, comes to the northern parts of England, instructing the monks in chant according to the Roman custom. I mean, these are enormous cultural achievements. We've already mentioned Queen Bertha, but um, were there any, any other women who played a role in the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons? Yeah, women play a very important role indeed in the Christianisation of Anglo-Saxon England, and also how it's remembered in future centuries. Now, the nature of the sources is such that it's elite women that we learn most about. That's queens such as Bertha, and princesses, especially those who turn to the monastic life. Now, they don't go into a nunnery and are then forgotten doing various pious deeds, They have real positions of status, power, and influence. And St. Hild or Hilda and Milberger are excellent examples. Now, there are some characteristics in common. They're both princesses, and they become abbesses of so-called dual houses. That's monasteries with both monks and nuns. And you also find this kind of monastery in France. Um, There's one not far from Paris called Shells. It's probably the most famous example. And the abbess there, like the ones we have here in England, is invariably of high, normally royal birth. Now, Hilda's monastery at Whitby is famous for its school, where five future bishops are educated as home to the cowhand Cademan, who discovers a miraculous gift for verse. And Hill's council or Hilda's council is sought by high and low alike. And she's called Mother, Beads tells us. And it's likely because of her wisdom and influence that her monastery was the location in 664 for the pivotal Synod of Whitby. Now, Milberger is a near contemporary of Hilda. She's a daughter of uh, Mirawald, a sub-king of Mercia. And she becomes abbess of the jewel house that he founds at Wenlock. Later sources say that she was consecrated a virgin, basically dedicating her life to God by Theodore, who we've just been talking about. And they also talk about her miracle working powers. And now Milberger comes from a family renowned for its sanctity. Her mother was venerated as a saint. So too were her sisters Mildred and Mildgeth, as indeed Milberger was to be. And there were also other uh, royal Anglo-Saxon abbesses who were immensely influential in both church and state and became renowned for their holiness. And Etheldreda, uh, Ely is another one that people might have heard about. But, you know, there is always a gap in our sources, isn't there? There's always more that you'd like to know more about. And I really would like to know more about the non-elites, men and women alike, and how did they respond 
to this process of conversion and what role did they take? And um, anybody who's out to do a very, very difficult PhD make their uh, historical mark, well, that might be an avenue you could pursue. I'm sure there are people who've been working on it and the degree to which non-elites were embracing Christianity. What were they feel? How did they feel about it? You know, what impact did it have on their religious observances, their daily life? You know, we get some hints of it by burial customs, but archaeology here would be very, very important indeed. And you've also got to get permissions to do that archaeology and also, you know, survey these areas and all that sort of thing. So um, it's quite a complicated PhD already, isn't it, really? But... um, <laughs> we, we live in hope for the for the eventual book. So um, we've talked obviously about a number of saints up until this point. We've got Saint Hild at Whitby. We've got Saint Augustine, and well, is, is Hadrian a saint as well? Or he is indeed. Hadrian and Theodore are saints as well. Virtually everybody we've been talking about today has been a saint. Have we got Benedict Biscop as a saint? Wilfred as yep. well. Theodore, yep. Hadrian, yeah. Queen Bertha is becomes a saint as well. Interestingly, I, I mean, it may well be that there was some kind of cult focus on it. And I'm not using, you know, I'm using cult in a very, very religious and slightly nerdy sense here. I'm not aware of one. It's possible that there was one. And, you know, I, I may well get corrected on this. But virtually everybody, I mean, this is a story. The conversion of Anglo-Saxon England is a story that can be told through saints. And that gives you an idea of their lasting importance, doesn't it? Now, The process of becoming a saint, as we understand it, that's official canonization by the Pope, is a product of much later in the Middle Ages. All the people we're talking about today are venerated because of their holiness and their importance of their deeds. And this veneration would have been almost immediate after their death. And um, I think Bede's description of Hilda's death or Hild's death gives a good idea of how these ideas of sanctity are constructed. And he describes a vision of a nun with Hild's soul being taken up to heaven amidst lights, a clear indication of her sanctity. And also the miracle working powers, miracles through Christ, of course, or Christ is working their miracles through them, rather, as an indication of their of their sanctity. But it's also something that is sustained and recognised by the church much later on, when the church takes a more of an interest in regularising sanctity. There's a little bit of a suspicion about some Anglo-Saxon saints as a consequence of the Norman Conquest, but, you know, they actually, actually emerge with their reputations enhanced and uh, the relics of a lot of the Canterbury saints are discovered in 1091 and they're what's called translated, they're moved and enshrined with even greater honour. And they find places with feast days in later medieval church calendars, and idealised biographies uh, are written by them. And it's interesting that these are being translated into English at the very, very end of the Middle Ages as well. So they have a, a reputation which extends across the entire Middle Ages, and indeed remain important focuses for veneration, identity and pride to this very day. If you had to recommend one English heritage site connected to the conversion of the Anglo-Saxon peoples of this early England, which site would you recommend and why? Oh, uh, you've you asked me a question like this once before, and I think I ended up choosing four, <laughs> didn't I? So I'm gonna be I am gonna be very disciplined this time, and I will just choose one, and it's Saint Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury. 
It was the centre of the mission, and you can see the location of the tombs, the outline of the churches associated with the many of the actors in this very, very important period. And you can also read in the ruins how the monastery remained important and developed in the following centuries, right through to its ruination during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monastery. It's the church and the tombs contained within it would have been an uncomfortable and unwelcome reminder to Henry of the importance of Rome to the conversion of England and to the history of the English church. And it's no surprise that the church is more or less eradicated. How many years did it take for Christianity to then become this default national religion of Anglo-Saxon England? Well, in terms of the conversion of the ruling elites, it's the best part of 100 years. And um, that's actually quite quick, if you think about it. Sussex and the Isle of Wight are the last bits to be officially converted. And um, there's a hint in the sources that it's quite a bloody process there. The story of conversion, as as we're given it, is that, yes, there are setbacks. There are are kings who are martyred, who, who are killed. But the actual, not that many of the missionaries themselves suffer a martyr's death. But There's a very good book recently published on the conversion of Anglo-Saxon England, which does suggest that the sword might have played more of a role in the process than is sometimes allowed. So if we were to sum all all of this up, Michael, what's the legacy of Christian missionaries to England, the work of the elites to try and spread their message to the ordinary people? Can we see any evidence of this today? It is really quite remarkable. And to some extent, the country we live in today is a legacy of that process, as is large parts of Europe. It is Anglo-Saxon missionaries who take Christianity to large parts of Europe, to the Low Countries, parts of Germany. They're converted by Anglo-Saxon missionaries. And we have several sites in the care of English heritage with roots going back to this time. Most obviously, there's St. Augustine's Canterbury, but there's also Reculver, there's Wenlock, there's Muchelney, Linda's Farm, Whitby, Jarrow. If you go into the museum at Whitby, you can see artefacts of international significance that show the influence of both traditions involved in the conversion, both the Irish and the Roman missionaries. And well, elsewhere, beyond the English heritage collections, you know, uh, uh, Canterbury, we've got the St. Augustine's Gospel Book, a manuscript uh, now at Cambridge, but likely brought to England by Augustine in 601. Remarkable survival. And then you've got the Lindisfarne Gospels, which we've talked about in an earlier podcast as well. Tangible evidence of melding of traditions, of importance of Irish traditions as well. There tremendous monuments to faith, the ruins of the monasteries we looked after, and also monuments to the human spirit as well, that they speak across the centuries. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll explore the life of 17th century autobiographer Alice Thornton as a new project is launched to tell her story at Midland Castle in North Yorkshire. And the passage is headed, my deliverance from drowning in the river at Midland when I went to be a witness to my sister Danby's first Francis, born at Midland Castle in the year 1644. Thanks for listening. See you next time.